these spacemen want from us? I mean, what are we negotiating for? I mean, is that a good deal? Is that what you want to know? Yeah, I want to know. What, are you trying to second-guess the negotiating team, Bob? Is that it? I just want to know if it's worth the trouble I'm going through. I don't want to waste my time if all we're going to get out of it is a few pictures of space or something. Okay, okay, I'll tell you. All right, all the flowers, all the trees, all the little birdies, oh, and all the children. All right, so what is this all about? Well, it seems like... The guys in chemical warfare dumped this stuff in the ocean by mistake. Now, this stuff kills this special algae, and that kills this bacteria, and it goes right up the food chain. Well, make a long story short, Bob, all life on Earth is going to be dead in five years. All life on Earth will be dead in five years? Well, unless we do something about it. Okay, what if we do do something about it? Well, then everything would be fine. We just don't know what to do. So that's where the you folks come in, Bob. You see, they're going to give us this good package, which includes a formula that will reverse the whole thing. This is what they want. A glass of water. That's it? Yep. They want anything with the water? Like what? A cracker or something?
Right Club. Tim here. We're back. I'm yeah. back. Uh, Kurt's not here. Running solo. Um, we haven't done an episode in a while. I think Pythos was the last one, the Slice event. Um, in any case, it's been a while. Uh, we're still working at schedules. Kurt, uh, as he mentioned in his last, in the last episode, um, has switched to days. So we're still trying to figure out uh, the best time for us to get together and record and who to speak to because I'd like to do a lot more interviews and uh, so would Kurt. Anyway, the reason for this podcast, this most recent Right Club podcast, uh, which I think is volume three, episode seven, for those who are counting, uh, December 4th, I went to the Brooklyn Comics and Graphics Festival, which was held in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, at a, a church, Our Lady of Mount Carmel Church. It was a free event, a free uh, festival. It went from uh, 12 noon to 9 p.m. It was interesting. Um, I believe that this was the second one, but I will lie if I'm held accountable to that. Um, it was organized by uh, Desert Island Comics, which is also in uh, Williamsburg. Um, and it was it was interesting. It was smallish for anyone who's ever been to the original MOCA, the Museum of uh, Cartoon and Comic Art um, conventions. If any, anyone who's ever been to those, the early ones uh, can kind of get an idea of what the uh, what the comics and graphics festival was like. Smallish basically in a room not much bigger than a high school gym. Um, had a bunch of uh, exhibitors, uh, well over 30. It looks like, I'm looking at the program right here, looks like about 47, um, maybe a little bit more. Mainly independent, uh, mainly just people out there with their mini comics and their art, just plugging away. Some really great stuff. If I wasn't so poor, I would have bought a lot of art. Uh, Ad House were there. Top Shelf was there. Um, let me see who else here. John Vermilia was there. His art was great. This kind of grotesque monster poster art. Um, Kate Beaton was there. A recent transplant from, I want to say, Nova Scotia. I think she's just moved to Greenpoint. Which, in my opinion, makes Brooklyn the comics capital of the world. The fest was interesting. A lot of great stuff. A lot of great effort. I split it around 2. I got there at 1. Uh, maybe 2, 2.30 because it just got way too packed. Really hot. Really hard to move. Uh, while, there, while I was there, at 1 o'clock there was a panel a panel discussion, a conversation uh, between Linda Barry and Charles Burns. If you don't know who these people are, then you're, you're doing comics wrong. You need to go check out these, these creators' work. Um, the panel was moderated by uh, Bill Kartopoulos. Um, I believe he is affiliated with Desert Island uh, and Picture Box, I think. Again, I will deny everything if, if called to task on this information. This is Right Club, making shit up since 2005. Although I don't even know if we've been going since 2005. But we'll pretend I have been. Um, anyway, the panel was great. I recorded it. So if you want to listen to it, that's coming up. Um... I'll read the little blurb about Linda Barry and Charles Burns in case you are not familiar with them. You can get a little more familiar with them because we're Right Club. That's what we do. Linda Barry drew the syndicated weekly comic strip Ernie Pook's Comique for more than two decades and has authored books included Cruddy, 100 Demons, What It Is, and this year's Picture This, which is a Actually, the beautiful hardcover, largest hardcover um, 
it looks watercolored. I think it is watercolor, but it's a kind of little brain teaser kind of in between a children's book and an adult book. Uh, but great. It has activities, very much an artist's work. Um, Charles Burns is the author of the acclaimed graphic novel Black Hole and the recent full-color book X'd Out. There you go. Um, they talk a bit about their kind of shared history in comics. They both went to the same high school, knew the same people. Um, the uh moderator's uh audio is very low he was wearing one of those shirt mics so you might not be able to hear all the questions but you know the questions were the questions the answers are the most important part and linda barry is hilarious so okay enjoy younger than this guy, 
uh, who could draw the way that he draws now in high school. And my first awareness of Charles, well, first of all, because he was called Charles. You're not Charlie or Chuck. That was sort of already attractive. And, um, <laughs> and um, he did the mural, he did a mural, right, um, from this, one of the stairwells that went around? Yeah, and um, the lunchroom. And it was so astonishing, and I was like instantly in love with him, and he had this giant Art Garfunkel afro. And uh, <laughs> I was doing everything I could to get him to notice me. It's like, hey, hi, do you wonder what time it is? Uh, want to know more about the Zodiac? <laughs> but I think for me, because I, I was your younger, I think your, your experience was, oh no, it's that girl.
and the science teacher was notoriously hard-assed. And my art teacher said, okay. Uh, and he propped the skeleton up in his in his little room. And I remember it just sitting like, you know, he busted out and sitting in a chair like this. And my art teacher said, I want you to go home and get some beer and take a hot bath and drink the beer and don't come back for three days. And that is still a really good advice for <laughs> almost any accident. Um, now, uh, Yeah, I did, but it, that was about, uh, Matt Granick was our editor, and um, so I, he was another person I was sort of chasing around, and um, so I did a lot of comics mostly just to irritate him, um, and it worked. Very irritated to this day. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, um, well, that was kind of the outfit, I was like, okay, get involved in a school paper, and uh, I actually had a job there doing pay stuff. No one here probably knows what pay stuff is anymore, but I used to actually uh, glue pieces of uh, you know, artwork and lettering down onto these boards to, uh, to produce the paper. So uh, I did I pasted up the ads and did uh, comic strips. And at some point, we, there was a local paper called the, the, the Daily O. We did a parody of that, which met through some comics, I do some comics, and there were, it was just a good period of this really stupid local paper. Anyway, it had to be. <laughs> were you responding to one another's work at all already at that point, or was it just something you were aware of? I was just, again, my, my excuse is that I was really in my own world. I was like, just, I had blinders on, and I was just focused in on. I didn't really, I mean, it seemed like you and Matt and everybody else were very social and, and, and there was a whole social atmosphere in this school and I was kind of came in and did my job and left. I wanted to be social with them very much, but they ditched me constantly. And Matt had this thing where he would tell me they had to go play bridge. And, and I believed him. He's here. And he, that is not true. It is true. It's true, man. So, um, I was just, my whole college career was trying to figure out where he was and where he was. So now you know. Yeah. We're all here. Yeah. Um, I want to talk um, a little bit about these uh, recent books of yours. It seems to me that looking at some of the work that you both produced recently, um, there have been some interesting progressions from the earlier work that you've done. I think one of the really super obvious things that for most of both of your careers, you really distinguished yourselves working in black and white. I mean, obviously, you both work in color and occasional, uh, but for the most part, you've been uh, working principally in black and white, but in both of your most recent work, uh, you've been working in full color in very different ways. And it's like, uh, I guess it started with 100 pages from here, but this kind of like uh, full process Charles, your uh, latest book is full color. It has something that this is called abstract, and it's about like the color as part of this little thing that is cool. Um, I was wondering if you could just both talk a little bit about what it's like for you've done. You know, if you have like a long and artistic life, a little bit of a white and incorporate other things that you have to How did you get started doing this? Well, I was always a painter, and so I kind of came to comics from being a painter. So I've always used color, um, but uh, especially in the early days, nobody could afford to print color. And, and the way the technology was set up, it had to be absolute black and white. I mean, unless you did zip tone or you know, somebody could do some kind of gray tone magic. Um, so it was mostly the technology or the way things were printed that really determined that the black and white stuff. Um, although I really love black and white, and I still uh, spend a lot of time with black and white. But I've always done color, and, um, and and then when things got less expensive to print in color, because when we were younger, they had to do that portfolio separation, and it was just super expensive, and now it's not as expensive, so I think more people will color. But I'd like to know about you, because this is a big deal for you, going into color, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I, the major influences when I was growing up was looking at 
black and white pieces. Yeah, so that, that got internalized uh, early on. And I always, I, and by looking at books and reading books about comics and cartooning, I realized that, yeah, you were supposed to use black and ink on paper. So I was trying to emulate that. And I was also emulating the, the artist's work that I admired. But, um, yeah, there were limitations as far as the printing process that uh, was there. Um, but I also, in a certain way, think about it. My brain thinks, but um, for this uh, for the book I'm working on now, it was just something that, that I, I wanted to push myself in a, in a, in a new de new direction and be able to use color in a way where it's it's part of the storytelling. It's not just a uh, a colorized version of uh, black and white uh, work. So you're actually doing some storytelling, and thinking about the story, and using that as a tool. Are there other artists?
because I, that's what I think that comics do, is that there's the part that the cartoonist gives you, but the cartoonist should only kind of give you half, and then the other half that you bring to it, and that's where you get that, the experience that I think this is about, because I have a real strong feeling that this stuff does have an absolute biological function. It has a lot to do with our feeling that life is worth living, which is step one. Not that much worth living, but just slightly <laughs> But even that's a step up. Um, and, and I think that has to do with bringing this, the past a little bit alive, or bringing it into uh, the time right now. So, and also, kids can't drive away. So in terms of plot, you know, I mean, most people could be like, if somebody's really mean to them, they can get their car and drive away, and the movie's over, right? So these guys can't escape. So um, that also makes an interesting yeah, you've got um, in your uh, the the book that you published, picture of this is a lot about drawing. The previous one a lot about writing. You actually have um, a lot of good information in there about the relationship between like memory and imagination. Um, and uh, one of the things that's really interesting about this too is like you've incorporated collage. It almost seems like a, you've included like cultural memories in the book somehow. How did you um, start working with this kind of cut-up collage sort of stuff? Well, again, it's something that I've always done since I was little. Um, uh, we, I lived in a, grew up in a house that didn't have a lot of books, um, but my mother worked at a hospital, so she would bring home all the magazines. Um, and so I think of all these articles that people read in waiting rooms while other people are dying. You know, it's like, how to stump a tomato so it looks like a rabbit. You know, it's funny. <laughs> But she would bring home all these magazines, and she also had a little bit of kleptomania, and she loved scissors. So she was constantly bringing home scissors from the surgery room. So I had every kind of scissor, you know, like to go into, what, this is the kind we use to go into the liver. And, um, and she had these really inky-binky tiny ones. I don't know what they were for, maybe eyelashes. And, uh, and I remember I used to just, when I, especially when I was really, really messed up, I used to just love to cut things out. And then I would do this thing which is really sad and funny when I think about it now. So I cut out all the comic characters, like Andy Cap and, you know, like uh, Nancy and Sluggo. Then, in one of my mother's magazines, I'd find a big picture of a bowl of food, like a big thing of beefaroni, okay, and meatballs. <laughs> then I'd make little slits. And then I'd start to make the characters come up through the slits. <laughs> and, 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 like, and then I'd laugh my ass off. Some kind of narrative. So I was always interested in that. And 
we're looking at the photographs earlier, uh, some of those are, are kind of purely visual things. Okay, here's the body, and put a different head on top of it. And some uh, there are other ones that didn't have that same that same kind of. Yeah, this is kind of. I think the one on that one's called Drug Buddy. Um, but I mean, just kind of putting putting those things together and and, and, and playing with. Them. So those ones are are obvious, but there's some that are that are less. You know, they're not that kind of optical effect. Anyway, yeah, I've always I mean, dating way, way back. I was always interested in that kind of, of of having images that aren't necessarily explained and how they play off of each other and what they create when you're when you're looking back and forth and thinking how they relate. I, I think that's the thing with collages; it really does activate the back of the mind. I mean, I think if if we were doing a functional MRI on somebody who was looking at um, just a, a really regular comic strip and then looking at something like this, my guess is that there would be a whole different part of the mind that's activated. And that, to me, that part of the mind is where the story and where all this stuff comes from. So anything that can get that part activated to me is, is valuable. And your work really does it. And um, so I think that that's another part about collage. It's that associative part of the brain that actually sort of knocks out the executive function. I was just looking at this right now. I realized that, that these two images are, they were like collage pieces, like stuff that I just held on to for years and years. So those are just like medical textbooks that I had clipped stuff out of. So yes, there must be something. There is a connection. There is a connection. Well, and you've been incorporating this a little bit in your most recent book. Like you've got really specific references to burrows and cut up uh, as, a, as a way of generating art. Um, and I, I love this sequence here where you've got um, kind of word balloons sort of going off panel and sort of floating together and forming a scene. Um, how do you see this kind of stuff relating to the way comics work? Well, for me, it's, 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 it's to tell the story in this case. Um, here's like this, the, main, the protagonist is, I guess, a, a, a cheap stand-in myself. But um, yeah, I was interested in Burroughs and cut-up cut up writing uh, at that time. But there's nothing, there's nothing random about the way that I'm putting all this stuff together. So it's like, it's, you're, you're, you're thinking about how those how those random elements play off of each other, but it's very carefully, carefully put together. Right. Um, yeah, and that's obviously a different all of this stuff that's very heavily crafted and we've also ahead of time. One other thing I wanted to uh, bring up, because a lot of these things that we're talking about seem like they suggest like entry points to creative production. One of the things that you uh, talk about a lot in Picture This, Linda, is, is like copying. Like you really encourage it, and even like this is an older how to draw Marlowe's strip. Like you really, like your book is very encouraging. Um, I actually, actually drew that model. Yeah, okay, I can do that. Really like me? You start there. How did it? How did it come out? Yeah. I had somebody tell me that he did a. He was introduced to me recently to be in college. I did a very cruel parody of your work early on. Very cruel. And I said, it's hard to parody my work. He goes, yeah, it just looks like bad drawing. <laughs> That's what it looks like, sir. <laughs> and I strangled him. <laughs> but copying, I think, is really key. If you think about how we learned the alphabet, we didn't come up with our own alphabet. We actually had to copy. And when I'm interested in copying, it's not so much, yes, it's fun to have a really nice Donald Duck when you're done or a nice Popeye, but there's something about moving your hand in a sustained way that, um, that I, and I'm getting more and more interested in what's going on um, in the brain when we're making these motions. I mean, I've gotten actually pretty fascinated with this idea of, 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 the, of uh, the, the function of this kind of work, the biological function, its relationship to mental health, actually. And so, um, one of the things when I teach my writing classes, I have everybody write by hand. And because, just in terms, as my grandma would say, hey class, um, because um, in the, um, in the uh, there's all the difference in what's going on in your head uh, between when you're drawing an A and when you're using your index finger to type an A. And, um, and, and when you're writing by hand, there are all these spatial relationships that are going on. And also you're calling um, these very specific emotions to mind in, in all these combinations. And I feel like just doing that causes um, 
causes something to happen. And also, I feel like when people copy, they might feel, and tracing, I really think tracing is a very good idea. Because what you get to do, it's sort of like singing along, right? You know, it's like you're singing along with a song, in a way you're tracing that song. with it. And so, I think that there's something about moving your hand, even if you feel like you can't draw, to just trace something, and you can throw it away afterwards. But, yeah, go ahead. I do a lot of tracing too. I, I, as a kid, especially, Look back, and I can find books where it's like embed, like number two pencil that's kind of like gone through this tracing paper. Yeah. No, but no, but that's exactly right. And and um, I feel like something happened in the 70s where the hippies came, and I was kind of one of them, and they convinced people that uh, coloring books were bad, and tracing was bad, and copying was bad. And what they did was they cut out, uh, by people believing that, they cut out a long period of time that people usually have to just kind of quietly color something in or draw something and it's uh, and again they, they cut out that possibility for the back of the line to come forward. So I really encourage and you know what, the minute I get around people well people who say they can't draw, oh I can't draw, I can't and, and uh, but you'll notice they'll always draw with a kid. Or people who can't sing or can't dance, can't do all this, you hand them a toddler and they're like la, 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 la. like I was walking through the airport, there's this crabby old guy with this like grandson and la, 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 and I just wanted to snatch the infant and just watch him la, 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 la. <laughs> But I think on the, uh, the obvious reason why we do, we'll do that around kids, the top of the mind would say, oh, because they're not intimidating, I mean they're, they're not judging. But I think it's because that language, prior to our spoken language, is a language that actually works. So when you're with a two-year-old who can't talk yet, you guys can sing together, you can draw together, you can make sculptures and then knock them down. And I think that that's because this, that's the language, the language of images, is the language that language is based on. So I'm interested in anything that will get people back to that um, uh, feeling, them doing this stuff that, again, will get you to step one, which is the feeling that life is worth living in a small way. It's funny, actually, how do you minor flashback squashing uh, uh, the coloring books. Just I remember it as a kid I was given a book called the anti-coloring book. It was a like a product of that version. And like this whole uh, idea of purging copying and tracing is like really counter to the way our schools are running today where it's like you have to do your thing. Um, and um, what you do is very or you have to hire someone to do it for you. Yeah that's or that's the alternative. Um, but like your art, Linda, is very like approachable. Like someone like looks at it and feels like, oh yeah, I could draw a baby that's what you use. I'll I'll speak for you.
three panels from Wally Wood's Flesh Garden by Harvey Kurtzman from Mad Magazine, and he copied that, and with pen and ink, he started doing like these three panels on crystal boards. So I was like, I was probably about five years old, and I could see that, I mean, to me it looked like inhumanly, it just looked impossible to do, but I could see that here's my dad, sat down and did this. So I think there was part of it is just like seeing that that was, you know, the things that you saw printed in a book is possible to do yourself. And I think that was just kind of this, this odd sensation early on in my life of seeing that physical piece of artwork that my dad had done. And so I was trying to copy him since then. And he was painting on Bristol board? He was like, he had all kinds of books that were kind of how-to books. So when I was growing up, there was things around the house. So like when I learned, when I looked at those books, I actually read them instead of looking at the pictures, I realized that yeah, you had to use a croquel pen or whatever it was. So I did my first horrible versions of that, but I used his tools. So he had that stuff around. So ink and, and pens and all kinds of photographs and all kinds of stuff. But he was... Yeah, he actually did, and, I, and they didn't, they don't, I, I haven't been able to find it, but he actually did like two, um, two comic strips, like for some college newspaper, and they were like uh, Milton Kniff, Terry and the Pirates sort of stuff, but he put them in, put them in like regular uh, civilian clothing, it was called Big Man on Campus, uh, it was, it was, anyway. I just wanted to ask you um, one more question, and then we can open it up a little bit in case anyone in the audience wants to ask you anything. But one thing that you've both done um, recently is edit um, editions of this annual anthology series, The Best American Comics. Um, I don't necessarily, um, uh, I'm not necessarily as curious about specifically what it was like to edit these books, but rather um, I'm just interested to know um, what you think about uh, the feel. I mean, editing a volume like this is like an opportunity to really survey what's out there right now. And obviously, things have changed a lot from the time people got started in the late 70s and early 80s. Like, how do you feel about where you know, the form that you're working in is, is right now? I think it's it could, I think it's the very, very, very amazing and exciting. Um, and that was probably the best job I ever had working on that book because uh, in particular, uh, younger cartoonists, and I think to me, everything changed once there were copy shops. Once copy shops started to exist, then everybody kind of had a, a, a hand in it. And um, what I like the most about comics is, I was talking to somebody about this this morning, in the past they've always been compared to other things. It's like they're like film, or they're like music, or they're like this, and now it's gotten to the point where they're not like anything else. They're their own thing. And um, uh, the thing that I love the most about them is that feeling, that sensation of changing my experience of time, which I think is vital. Um, getting back to this idea of moving our hands around, if you think about people can't draw, and they, but they'll doodle, you know, like in a really boring meeting, especially when someone that can't stand starts talking, they actually have to do this to keep killing them. And so they're drawing like their little guy or their little eyeballs. And um, if you ask them why they do it, um, they have, they'll often have a hard time um, uh, explaining it, but then you say, what would happen if you couldn't? And so there is this weird feeling of time travel, changing experience, even if it's just minor. Like the meeting would feel like a cheese grater, but when you draw it, it was like Brillo. And that's, that's an improvement. And um, so I'm very, very excited about what's happening with comics, and I'm really excited by all the ladies that are in comics now. Um, which is really, really wonderful. Like, and also the, the ladies with balls that are in comics, which are my favorite kind of ladies. And so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I'm, very, I'm really, really happy about what's going on. I, I know it's not a good time for publishing, and that part's hard. And I know that when I was, in, when I was younger, you know, like my apartment was $99. And so you really could make comics and live on almost nothing. I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I'm very worried about the students who are coming out of art school so heavily in debt. Because um, that seems to be a new phenomenon, like heavily in debt, like going $50,000. Um, I'm very concerned about that in terms of what it does to your life and your work. You know, because you actually have to deal with that uh, monkey. My, my sense is that yeah, it, it's an incredible period right now where you don't have to explain yourself that much anymore. I don't. I, don't, I used to literally 
when someone would be saying, well, what do you do? Well, I do illustration because I did not want to go through the explanation of, you know, well, I do comics. Well, they're, they're you know, what kind? Like peanuts or like, you know, Bailey? I'm like, oh, no, they're, they're more for adults. And there's this kind of look on their face. Like, uh, maybe like adults like porno. You know, so, so just spent too, too much time explaining what you did. Um, comics for adults, okay. You're done with the discussion. But, but there really is a sense, um, I mean, what, my sense is that it's, it's a pretty even playing field in the sense that, that, that you're saying there's a lot of women that are doing interesting comics. Or, and it, it's something that you can, like anyone can do. It's accessible. It's not like, uh, you know, I want to be a filmmaker. Well, guess what? You've got, a, you know, you've got a lot of people you're going to have to you know, work with first. Uh, you can sit down by yourself uh, at a table with a flare pen and a piece of eight and a half by eleven, you know, typing paper, and and then take it down to the, you know, the, the print shop, and you can you'll have something you can hand it to your friend. And there's something very nice about that. It's, it's accessible. Uh, you have no excuse for not doing something. You, know, you can't say, oh well, you know what? It was a really great idea. My movie, the script was really great, but they blew it. You know, and that actress. She was good. Uh, but I mean, you have no, you, you can't blame anybody else. It's all yours. You know, down, for, for me, it's down to, I mean, I can, I can I've design my books and, and choose the paper stock as well. So there's an, an amazing amount of control, which is, that, that, that's something nice. It's, it's really, it's really I, I want to add about explaining what it is we do, because that is really true now. We don't, people, look well, if they have that awful term, graphic, Whatever. <laughs> graphic novel, graphic memoir, you just put graphic in front of it, everything's fine. But uh, one of the things about cartooning with little kids, you never have to explain anything. It's like I'm sitting with them and I'll tell them, do you eight year old when I'm drawing? And they'll look and see me drawing, and I'll go, I'm a cartoonist. And they'll go, really draw something? So I'll draw a chicken, and they'll go, you are! And they go, no! <laughs> but then I draw that same chicken in my rural Wisconsin community. It's like, oh, you're a cartoonist? It's like, yeah, I am. To draw something, draw the same damn chicken, and they'll look at it and go, you follow that dream, because everyone has a dream that that's yours. <laughs> the other nice thing about the women who are cartoonists, you know, it used to be that when you were a woman who was a cartoonist, you had to be writing about being a woman. And now I don't feel like that, uh, that's on anybody anymore. That's why I don't like it. We have a couple of minutes. And is there anyone in the audience who would like to ask a question for the Charles Wendell? Yes. I have one. What, uh, what a dreams factor, not dreams, what, what you want to be, the dreams, but actual, like, subconscious dreams, how do they factor in? Yeah, the question was, how do dreams factor in? Yes. I pay close attention to my subconscious, so I, I, I'm always writing and I'm always. I'm doing my best not to censor myself in any way. So that means, like, whatever those thoughts are, the occasion there's things that I've, I've written, and as I'm writing down my notebook, I'm just thinking, I don't know if I can do this, or if I should do this. Or, you know, again, what if my mom and dad read this, which they're going to eventually. But you, I really have to make an effort not to, you know, kind of 55 worrying about my parents reading. <laughs> I, I met Iggy uh, Pop one time, and you know, I was doing this album cover, and he said, yeah, but this new album's got, you know, I used the word fuck, and, and you know, my mom's not gonna like it. I'm like, you're an Iggy Pop. Iggy, if I hear that word one more time, I didn't raise you to say fuck on an album. <laughs> my dreams don't, uh, don't really apply too much, except for I do know one thing that the if you want to feel instantly tired, all you have to do is go out to have somebody say to you, I had this crazy dream last time. <laughs> yeah. But I did have this crazy, but this is how you can make them interested. I had a really crazy dream last time and you were in it. <laughs> but I did have this dream, and I just want to say it really fast. I, you know, I had a dream that I was in New York City, and I'm standing on a corner, and there are ambulances going by, and then the laying in the middle of the street is a dead guy. And he's laying there, and his stomach is open, and these wasps the size of fists are coming out of his stomach. And I'm looking at him, and, like, and then I look at the guy next to me, and who's Charles, and I said, uh, <laughs> I said uh, man, am I seeing what I'm seeing? And uh, you say, yeah. And 
And I said, that guy has to have been dead a really long time for that many wasps to be coming out of his belly. And the dead guy goes, fuck you. <laughs> Charles and Linda for making today such a pleasure. 